This podcast is brought to you by Intel V Pro. It is no joke out here. You know, just walking to the car, it's like, it's just too hot. Heat in Phoenix is, it's, I didn't really understand what it was like until I was there in person during this crazy heat wave when it was 115, 118 for many, many days in a row. And it's just, it's oppressive. Earlier this summer, climate reporter Shannon Osaka was in Phoenix, where a record-breaking heat wave was just scorching the city. She was there to visit DeRay Goodwin. People say, oh, it's a dry heat. Yeah, it's a dry heat, but it'll kill your Last year, 425 people died in Phoenix because of extreme heat. One of them was DeRay's son, Stephen Goodwin. So Stefan was a 33-year-old young man, and he was walking down a pretty rural street in the south of Phoenix. It was the middle of a heat wave. It had been over 110 for many days in a row. I think at that point it was around 111 degrees. And he was walking down the middle of the street, so the sunlight reflecting off the road probably made things much hotter. And he was spotted by a woman who was driving by, and she saw him and thought... Something might be wrong. This man might be in danger. She called out to him to ask him if he needed help. And he wasn't able to respond to her. He looked at her, then kind of turned away and kept walking down the road. And she called 911 and said, you know, I need help. I think this man is going to die. Dere's son, Stefan, did die that day of heat exposure. But he also had a condition that made him much more vulnerable to the heat in the first place, which was schizophrenia. Schizophrenia might be one of the deadliest pre-existing conditions when combined with heat. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Rachel Siegel. It's Friday, September 8th. When we think about people vulnerable to extreme heat, We often think about the elderly or people with heart conditions. But today, we're looking at a group that's often overlooked, people with schizophrenia and other mental health issues. So, Shannon, you spoke to DeRay about her son, Stefan. What did she tell you about his childhood, what he was like as a kid growing up? So I went to Phoenix to, to meet with DeRay, and I actually met with her. The first time we met in person was the anniversary of Stefan's death. Mm. This, my niece, when we got to her house for the celebration of life, mm. she had the whole living room stuff just covered in pictures of him. That's amazing. For us. Yeah. So. And I went to this two-bedroom trailer where DeRay lives with her husband um, and her daughter and some of her grandkids. And it was a really, really hot day. It was 115 degrees. Oh, my God. 115. 115 degrees. The AC was blaring. Um, Everyone had to stay inside. And she just started telling me about Stefan, showing me pictures of him as a baby, as a toddler. Mm. And these are three that she had blown up, and I had them laminated. So. 
Oh, that one's so cute. That's a baby Mr. Preppy. Yeah. Look at the little sweater vest. <laughs> and my mom called him a preppy. I was like, DeRay remembers Stefan as being just a really happy, kind of funny kid. She told me this one really funny story about Stefan when he was just a toddler playing with his dad's cowboy boots. <laughs> oh my gosh. He was probably maybe 15, 16 months old. And I had given him a bath and got him out of the tub, dried him off. And he took off running. And I'm, I'm like, Stefan, come here, I gotta dress you. And he comes out of the bedroom with his dad's cowboy boots on and nothing else. Just all the way up there, cowboy boots. <laughs> you can really, you can hear the joy in her voice when she's, when she's remembering this. Yeah, she has a lot of just fond memories of him as a kid, just being a kid. And when did things change? I mean, when did things start to change for Stefan? When did when did DeRay realize that something was wrong? Yeah, so he was in his late 20s, and he started telling his family that he was hearing voices. Mm. He started seeing things um, that weren't there. At one point, he told his mother that he had seen the body of a burned child behind the house that mm. they were living in at the time. And he started to have a lot of fear that people were out to get him, that people were trying to kill him. Uh, DeRay describes him as being scared to death, that he was always afraid that people were trying to kill him, whether it was family members or friends that he'd had for a really long time. And he just struggled to connect with his family and even be in his family's trailer for any prolonged period of time. Because he would come here and visit. He'd only be here a half hour and he had to go. He had to leave. He just, he had to go. It was very hard, very hard. And then when Stefan was in his late 20s, he finally got a diagnosis. He actually checked himself into a psychiatric clinic and was there for three days. And they diagnosed him with schizophrenia and post-traumatic stress disorder. And I remember we went to see him and I had, we were talking and they had put him on lithium and made him feel like a zombie and he didn't like it. And I had asked him to go back and have his medication adjusted and he wouldn't do it because he was afraid they wouldn't let him out. Stefan took the medication for a little while. He didn't like how it made him feel and then he stopped taking it. And DeRay tried to get him to go back and get new medication that would help treat his symptoms. But he was afraid that he would be institutionalized, that mm. they would hold him and he wouldn't be able to get out. He was very afraid of a lot of different things at this mm. point. He couldn't hold down a job. And, and towards the, you know, the last bit of it, he just could not sit still. He, he, he was running, running. And that's what we think. He never stopped until he collapsed. To step back about what was happening around Stefan, what has heat been like in Phoenix for the last few summers? Um, Phoenix is one of the hottest cities in the United States. 
just coming into contact with the sidewalk or the pavement can cause people to have second or third degree burns. People die from burns that they sustain just from falling down on the ground. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people in Phoenix are shielded because, you know, everyone has air conditioning and people who have a place to stay and who don't have any other um, pre-existing medical conditions can generally make it out of a summer in Phoenix okay. But for folks who have mental illnesses, folks who are homeless, people who are elderly, they are at severe risk. And we don't have the total numbers for this year, for 2023 summer, but in 2022, 425 people in Phoenix died due to the heat. So your story is about Stefan in particular. Why was this heat so dangerous for him? It's really interesting. I mean, I learned about this a few months ago. I had read a study that said that there's all of these things about the condition of schizophrenia that makes it really dangerous. So there's evidence that goes back almost 100 years that people with schizophrenia just struggle to regulate their body temperature in the way that other people do. When it gets really hot or really cold, they have their body temperatures fluctuate more than someone else's might. Um, And then people with schizophrenia tend to be on antipsychotic medications. Those medications can make their users more vulnerable to heat stroke. They can prevent you from sweating properly. They can make you more dehydrated. And then there's all of these social factors. I mean, people with schizophrenia are more likely to be homeless. They are more likely to be estranged from family members and friends and lack those like strong relationships that can help you protect yourself. And then... People with schizophrenia have, you know, they often experience psychosis, which is the state where um, people might hallucinate, they might have delusions, not know where they are, feel like they're in danger. And in the midst of a psychotic episode, people can wander away from their friends and family where they're staying. They can get confused. They can lose track of essentially like what's happening to their body. When we talk about schizophrenia as one of the most dangerous pre-existing conditions, what does that actually look like and how does that compare to other diseases? Yeah, this truly shocked me when I started um, researching this piece. I talked to this researcher in British Columbia where they suffered an extreme heat wave in 2021 and they had analyzed all of the deaths that had occurred during that time and looked at various medical conditions that people had. And they found that by a huge margin, schizophrenia was the most dangerous pre-existing condition. About 8% of the people who died during that heat wave had schizophrenia. And schizophrenia is about 1% of the overall population. And the researcher told me, you know, people with kidney disease um, were 36% more likely to die during the heat wave than during a normal week. But people with schizophrenia were 200% more likely to die during the heat wave. And that was just such a huge, staggering difference. And I I couldn't believe that I hadn't heard about this before and that I hadn't realized the toll that it was taking on this population. After the break, the toll these factors took on Stefan and how they led to his final hours in the heat. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra Processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity, all with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com slash itheroes. 
So, Shannon, you've explained why people suffering from schizophrenia are more vulnerable to extreme heat. What was happening for Stefan last summer when all of these things were coming together on this extremely hot day in Phoenix? A woman passed by, saw him, called 911. How were these factors all coming together for him? Yeah, so Stefan Goodwin um, was living with his girlfriend and her father, and it seems like they had an argument of some kind. And Stefan called his grandfather and said, hey, can I come spend the night with you? And his grandfather said, of course, you know, you're always welcome here. And the family thinks that he was in um, something of a paranoid or possibly psychotic state. He had two firearms with him. He showed up at his grandfather's house with a gun in each hand. And his grandfather took his guns. So he took his guns for the night. And in the previous year, he had started to get more and more paranoid, concerned that family members were out to get him, friends were out to get him. He was constantly worried about dying or being killed. Um, And it all kind of came to a head in this two-day period. The next morning, he was just out of sorts. He's calling the police, telling the police his grandfather won't give him his guns. And the next morning... He basically disappeared, called his grandfather from a nearby intersection, and asked his grandfather to bring him his guns. His grandfather met him at 107th and Buckeye to give him his guns back and told him, here, I don't want to keep your guns. His grandfather said, you know, let me take you somewhere. Let me take you back to your girlfriend's house. Let me take you to your mother's house. He says, I can give you a ride wherever you want to go. And Stefan refused, and he seemed to understand that something was going on for him. He seemed to understand that he wasn't all there. And he told his grandfather, I'm going to check myself into the hospital. I'll go to the hospital. And his grandfather said, let me drive you. And he said, no, I got here on my two feet. I'll get there on my two feet. So he wouldn't even take a ride from his grandfather. And that was the last time that um, any family members saw him. In this moment when he's walking away from his grandfather... How hot was it outside? It was around 97 degrees by that point, and it was just 7 a.m., already 97. And it seems like from that point on, he was out and about in Phoenix for over 24 hours in those conditions. Wow. What would have been happening inside of his body while he was walking around when the temperature was rising, when he had been out for that long? What was going on inside of him? Yeah, I mean, when you're when you're in hot conditions, your body essentially takes a ton of steps to try to cool you down because we all know your body wants to be somewhere around 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And what happens is, you know, your body starts sweating and then when you sweat, your sweat evaporates from your skin, that cools you off and your body tries to funnel more blood to your extremities so that your blood gets cooled and then can return to the center of your body and cool the rest of you off. But the longer that you're out there, these those functions either stop working as well or they start to really stress your internal organs because your body is pumping that blood away from your internal organs, away from your brain, away from your heart, away from your kidneys. And that can start to cause organ damage. When the blood is moving away from your brain, people get dizzy. They get confused. A lot of people fall down because, you know, their brain is trying to return some blood to the brain. Um, I talked to a lot of medical practitioners in Phoenix who would talk about people going down, you know, and that was, that's kind of like the final step of when you know you're in a really dangerous heat situation is when someone falls down. 
after Stefan walked away from his grandfather, as his body is getting closer to this crisis point, did his family hear from him again? How long was he walking around before his family got any kind of update? Yeah, so he left that early in the morning. It was around um, 7 a.m. And then he it seems that he went back home to his girlfriend's house where he was living and took a shower. And um, his girlfriend's father was home. And his girlfriend's father said, you know, hey, why don't you stay until she gets home? You don't have to leave. Stay here. You don't have to go anywhere. And he says, no, I got to go. I got to go. And to go. And then from that point, nobody heard from him for around 24 hours. And they were concerned and they were calling the police and saying, you know, we have a missing person. We don't know where he is. And then um, the morning of the next day, that was July 14th, 2022, um, his mother, DeRay, got a call from him on her cell phone. He calls me. He tells me he's dying. Where are you? And... DeRay said, okay, I'll come get you where, you know, just tell me where you are, Stefan. He, he had no idea where he was. He was very disoriented. He was confused. He said South something, so I knew he was near South Mountain somewhere. He saw a sign that said something about South Mountain, which is a huge um, park and preserve in the south of Phoenix. And so his family said, okay, you know, we'll send people to look for you on South Mountain. We had... The rangers, helicopters, everything out looking for him. As it turns out, he wasn't, he was very close to the park, but he wasn't actually on South Mountain. He was on a, a rural street about, about half a mile away. The last thing I got to tell him was I loved him. I told him, we have people looking. That's all I could do. I had no idea where he was. Shannon, I, I can't even imagine how difficult it must have been for DeRay to be talking about this kind of loss. It was very, it was very difficult. Um, DeRay is a really strong woman and has been through something really, I think, unimaginable for a lot of people. And I think for the whole family, you know, they were trying to help Stefan at all of these various points. And I think for his family, for DeRay, it's a set of just what ifs. You know, what if he had let someone drive him to the hospital? What if the police and the EMTs had come sooner to respond to those calls and had been able to revive him? Why didn't they come right away? Yeah. Yeah. All of these things where it feels like he was you know, really for a long time kind of teetering on the edge of this really deadly heat and just, you know, through a bunch of circumstances ended up tipping over and it ended up being being fatal for him. He could have been saved. I believe he could have been saved. What do we know about why the EMTs weren't able to respond sooner? Did you learn in your reporting and from talking to the witness who called 911 what happened? This was a really difficult thing about reporting this story. I found out about the witness from combing through police reports and 911 call reports, mm -hmm. and she was just driving along the road. She tried to call out to Stefan and ask him if he needed help. Then she called 911 for the first time, and she waited. She waited a few minutes, and then she called them again and said, 
look, I'm really worried. Mm. I think that this guy needs serious help. And they told her, don't worry, the fire department will be there in just a few minutes. And then she noticed that he had a gun holstered on his shorts. And she told the 911 dispatcher, I I see that he has a gun. And the result of her noticing that was that the dispatchers realized they had to send the police first before sending the fire department or the EMTs. And that created a really significant delay. It took another 17 minutes from when she Mm. noticed the gun for the police to come. And then only after the police had cleared the scene and removed the gun from Stefan um, was the fire department able to come and try to revive him. And when I talked to this witness, she said, I wish I'd never seen the gun. I wish I hadn't noticed that. And maybe then they would have come sooner. And it just, it really troubles her. She was there the whole time. She saw everything unfold. And she wanted his family to know that she had been there. She had tried to help. She had asked on the 911 call, can I do anything? Can I go over to shade him or anything? And the dispatcher had said, he's armed. You shouldn't approach him. But it was a very challenging situation for her and one that she still thinks about Mm -hmm. a lot to this day. So everyone who was close to Stefan or or who was linked to his death in some way have been processing this for now over a year. How are they doing now? And has anything changed in terms of how people can get help if they have a 911 call, 911 call made about them or if others are worried about how they might fare in the heat? Yeah, I think that for his family... You know, they're, they're healing. DeRay told me, his mother told me a, a few different things about how she's, she's dealt. She said, well, my hair has all turned gray as a result of this. My hair has turned gray since he died. I mean, this was instant. Really? Yeah, it's my husband. Wow. It's just like, I had a look, you know, I always covered my gray, but as soon as... She says she has a lot of anxiety um, from the experience and spends a lot of time crocheting and doing things like that to kind of calm herself down. Of, wow, those are beautiful. Now, do you do each square separately? I haven't yes. I've knitted, but I've never crocheted. Yes. Each square is separate. Wow. I do 144 squares. Per blanket. Mm-hmm. But there's still, there's a huge hole for them in their lives of this person, and they have a big, you know, interconnected family, and, and he's no longer there. I think um, from a larger perspective, people are only just now starting to realize that people with mental illness are really severely affected by things like extreme heat. I think a lot of people are thinking of, you know, people who are unhoused, and there's a huge overlap there between people who are unhoused and people with serious mental illness and people who are elderly and things like that. But there just hasn't been that much attention to this population, and it's only starting now. Um, And... You know, there still aren't, Phoenix doesn't have a specific plan for how to protect people with mental illness from instances like that. There are many different groups, nonprofits, medical providers who are really trying to help people with schizophrenia who are unhoused, who do have homes but are at risk, trying to help them get their medication all the time, trying to basically, I I followed this one doctor who has about 100 patients with schizophrenia. And 
they go out and deliver medications to them sometimes every day because it just takes a lot of care and it takes developing a rapport and a relationship with someone who is in sometimes states of extreme paranoia to keep them safe. So it's an ongoing struggle. What can cities like Phoenix do or what are they already doing to try and meet the needs of people with schizophrenia or who are out here in this extreme heat? I think there's a few things. I think number one is getting people who are unhoused indoors because that is the most, one of the most important things that people are just really vulnerable, Um, especially when you're in situations where it will not drop below 100 even in the middle of the night. I mean, that's really the situation that people are living through. And I think it's also about making people aware that their friends, their relatives who have serious mental illnesses are at a higher risk. And I think a lot of people don't know that. I, When I was starting to report this story, I called several different families who had lost uh, children or loved ones in similar situations in Phoenix. And people didn't realize that this was something that was happening to other people, to other families. Um, they just didn't know that, you know, medications make were making people more vulnerable. They didn't know that, you know, with psychosis and things like that, people can wander off and not come back for a really long time. So I think that that is a huge part of it as well, is just trying to get the message out that, This is a vulnerable population and cities and states and also friends and families need to be thinking about, okay, how can we protect these folks? Shannon, you're describing talking to families who learned in some ways through your reporting that this was something that was common, not just a tragedy that had happened to them. What are some of the ways you came across that, some of the ways in which these stories bubbled to the surface, even just among the people you were talking to? Yeah, there was one moment that I think really drove it home to me, which was uh, the the witness, the woman who had been there and called uh, 911 for Stefan. I called her a, a few weeks ago to check some facts, make sure that I had gotten her story correct. And she told me that she actually had an acquaintance whose son had schizophrenia and who had died in the heat just a couple of weeks before. So around the time that I was actually out in Phoenix um, reporting this story. I I mean, just this one witness that you talked to for Stefan's story, she ended up knowing yet another person who this happened to. I mean, that's, that's unbelievable. But I guess at the same time, your reporting is showing that this is happening to so many people. Yeah, it really shocked me. But I think it just drove home that this is something that we haven't been paying very much attention to but it's affecting a lot of people. And it's affecting a lot of people in Phoenix right now, but as the entire world gets warmer, it's going to affect people in more and more places. And it's something that we're just really going to have to grapple with as to how are we going to protect this population. Shannon, thank you so much for sharing the story with us. Thank you for having me. Shannon Osaka is a climate reporter at The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. It was mixed by Sean Carter. It was edited by Robin Amer and Maggie Penman. DeRay's interview was recorded by our colleague Aaron Patrick O'Connor. Our team includes Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, 
Alahe Izadi, Monica Campbell, Eliza Dennis, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnik, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svernovsky, Sabi Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, Robin Amer, and Renita Jablonski. I'm your guest host, Rachel Siegel. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra Processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity. All with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com slash itheroes.